Prestige heads, and welcome to your weekly free American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and colleague Derek Davison. And Derek is is upsetting me right now because he's actually been on vacation for a week. So, Derek, how you doing, man? It hasn't even been a whole week yet. Let's not get carried away. But that's too much <laughs> already. Right, and any so. time is too much from my end. Uh, <laughs> we've had a lot of discussions about you know Derek taking time off. I really I've, I've implored him to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But after much discussion, after much negotiation, we have decided that he was allowed to take the last few days off. So are you enjoying your time in beautiful, sunny California? I am actually. Uh, this is uh, Northern California, which I haven't been to for a very long time. So I'm, I'm, yeah. It's been, it's been nice to get out of, get away from the East Coast where it's still like trying to be winter. Uh, <laughs> to get away from the Pentagon, uh, and, uh, the Pentagon suburbs. Although it was weird, it's weird because I think I triggered all my spring allergies like getting off the plane. <laughs> nice. Uh, all at once. So that was that was a little uncomfortable, but uh, it's been it's been good. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just hoping that this vacation basically shuts down all that unionization talk that you and Jake have been uh, discussing about trying to unionize against me and and starve our you're, little podcast. You're, you're, you're verging perilously <laughs> close on an LRB report here, so I would be careful oh, no. about about what goes on here. Yeah, well, I, I better do it quickly because apparently the NLRB or, or someone associated with the NLRB <laughs> released some report stating that you might not be able to hold closed door meetings where the company basically tells you how terrible unionization is. And we've had several no. hundred of those no. at American Prestige <laughs> recently. So I hope they've, <laughs> they've really taken one of our favorite pastimes. And uh, as, as you all know, to, to really get into that transition here, this is a big week uh, on American Prestige because you are all listening to us or, you know, associated with uh, now uh, Substack. American Prestige has moved from Patreon to Substack. We had a great experience with Patreon. We actually met with Hiram Patreon himself, that old industrialist. Um, they were very nice to us, but we decided that uh, Substack is, is just able to offer us a bit more in what we want to do here at American Prestige um, in terms of layout. Uh, we hope to bring you some video content soon. We hope to begin uh, discussion threads and really begin engaging with our community uh, a bit more. And so before we get to the episode, we just wanted to do a bit of quick housekeeping. Uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you should have actually already received an email. Um, your payment for the month of April has been paused. And also, uh, you'll receive 30 days free, a free month from Substack. Or if you were an annual subscriber over at Patreon, you'll actually receive a full year free starting from the day you move over at Substack. So so please um, sign up for the Substack and, and everything along those lines. Of course, uh, you could uh, become a member at any time during the month. You become a paying subscriber, and you actually won't get charged until the trial is over. And of course, we'll, we'll always remind you when the trial is coming to a close. And so we really, uh, we've said it before, but we really appreciate your support for the American Prestige Project as a whole. As we said in our Substack launch post, we started this podcast because we're just uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired. We're sick and tired of how um, the mainstream American news media coverage 
not only U.S. foreign policy, but international affairs when it, when it deems to cover international affairs, which it oftentimes uh, doesn't. So we really appreciate your support for a heterodox foreign policy project, a real critical project about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Um, and, and just quickly, as I wind up here, we wanted to let you know that if you have any issues at all, please reach out to podcasting at substackinc.com for dedicated support. Again, that's podcasting at substackinc.com if you want dedicated support for any issues. And before we actually head to the news, Derek, if you have anything to add about Substack or you know, you've been using it for a while or why you think this is um, a good move, I hope you think it's a good move, uh, please uh, I was feel told, free to chime no. in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean... Um, the level of, I think, uh, uh, support we're going to be able to get from Substack dwarfs, um, uh, what we would have been able to get, uh, at our previous home. So, um, I really do think, you know, folks are gonna, you know, if you're, if you're the type of person who consumes the show through uh, a podcast app, whatever that is, downloads through a podcast app, you're not really going to notice that much of a change. Uh, we're going to still be on all the apps and um, all of that sort of thing. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you want to be engaged with uh, what we're doing and uh, interact and uh, take advantage of the the features that I think we'll be able to implement at Substack that were not going to be so easy to do um, at our previous home, then, uh, you know, come to the, the Substack page, uh, AmericanPrestigePod.com and uh, check it out. Yeah, and we really like to start interacting with fans more, having discussion threads going back and forth, because that really is the best way to sharpen your ideas and to sharpen the critique of U.S. foreign policy that we've been developing. And and the final thing before we move to the news, there were some listeners who were concerned that they wouldn't be able to download episodes, because uh, and then they, therefore they would have to stream them. Do not worry. Uh, in future episodes, we will be providing a download option, so, so you don't necessarily have to use streaming data. Uh, and then, uh, again, to just to finally wrap up, up, but um, also, you know, again, to reiterate, like if you were doing it through Apple Podcasts or something and downloading the show that way, you'll still be able to do that just as before. Like, yeah, uh, we'll still be on all the regular. Yeah. yeah, we'll still be on on the regular podcast apps. Apple, and most of those you know. apps have a download option, I think, so you don't have to stream it. Uh, yes, you know, you can you can download it. Yeah, because we appreciate that not people don't want to you know run through their their streaming data. Um, so we're we're gonna make all of that work. Um, and so yeah, and and just to to wrap up, um, you know there might be a little bit of growing pains, a few growing pains over the next couple of weeks, but we will get everything sorted. And again, we just really appreciate everyone's support. So now that housekeeping is done, Derek, there is a real there's a lot of stuff going on in the world this week. Who would have guessed? Who would have known? Yeah, it's um, a good week to take. Take a, take a yeah, you picked that. This is why I told you. This is why we can, at American Prestige Headquarters <laughs> did yeah. not want you to take any vacation. But you know, this is this is the risk. This is the, the tangled web we weave, as it were. So why don't we get started on uh, what's going on in Ukraine? Because there there's been some significant developments from what I can tell. So so Derek, what's been going on? So I mean, I think the two developments that we can talk about. Um, and you know there there have been others, but I, I don't think necessarily we need to get into them. Um, are the uh, movement of Russian forces out of northern Ukraine by and large? Um, the Pentagon has you know 
sort of confirm this, but there was it's uh, pretty clear that that Russia has pulled its forces out of uh, Kiev, the Kiev region, the Kiev Oblast. Uh, it's pulled back from Chernihiv, which was a city, another northern Ukrainian city that the Russians had had besieged. Um, and, you know, initially when these reports started to come out of Ukrainian forces kind of moving forward and finding that the Russians had moved back, this was earlier this week, um, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, the Russians are losing, they're retreating, they're being routed, they're running away. Um, but but it seems pretty clear that what they're doing is what exactly what they said they were going to do uh, a couple of weeks ago. They are redeploying these forces to the east uh, for what they're calling the second phase of the war, which is the war to uh, liberate the Donbass or to protect the Donbass, whatever, you know, whatever terminology you want to put to it. Um, you know, it's it's pretty clear that they've they've decided to refocus on that region. Uh, which includes the siege of Mariupol, which is the one of the big ongoing kind of uh, and and probably most violent. Although uh, we have to wait till the dust clears to to know how violent uh, parts of this war. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't I don't think this is a sign that they're losing, unless you believe that uh, even the decision to uh, retarget their their efforts. Uh, to focus specifically on the Donbass is a sign that their their war aims, their broader war aims, have been thwarted. Which again is sort of an ongoing debate whether they uh, intended initially to conquer the whole country and have decided that they can't do that, and so they're going to take a chunk of it instead. Um, or if this was the plan all along. Again, this is sort of um, as I've said uh, the last couple of weeks. My hotline to the Kremlin is down and and still hasn't been repaired. I wish tech service would get on that. Actually, wow! Uh, so, First vacation yeah, and now, uh, and now right, no, exactly. no longer you know, communication. I mean, that's with the more Kremlin. insulting than anything. I feel like Vladimir <laughs> Putin is not not treating me very well. Um, but so that that's where things stand, kind of on the ground. Uh, the second thing. Wait, wait, Derek. Uh, we before can, we move on, so yeah. I mean, obviously we don't know, but is there anything about the, the the sort of military course that the war has taken that points in either direction, whether or not? This is a um, sort of a, a change in goal based on realities, if this was the goal all, of, all the time. Because to me, I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert on what, what's going on um, in the war militarily. But to me, it seems like a change of, of war aims. It seems like the, the, the push toward Kiev um, and various other pushes throughout the country didn't really succeed. And now they're reconsidering uh, their their grand strategy, essentially their strategy for the war, in order to essentially take control of the eastern areas, which are of course closer to Crimea and closer to various you know larger Russian war aims um, than anything else. What's your, what's your take as someone who's been observing this so closely? Um, I, I mean, I come down on that side with the caveat that I I don't know this for a fact, and and I don't uh, you know pretend to to have. Uh, the the you know kind of absolute insight here, but no, of course not. We can't. Um, know, you yeah. know, th- there was there does seem to have been uh, a a fairly concerted effort to get into Kiev and then failing that to surround Kiev and and try to besiege it. Both of those efforts, um, you know, didn't work or or you know they didn't proceed to the the sort of final conclusion that you would have expected. Um, the Russians will say they did this to tie down Ukrainian forces, um, you know, so that they could then turn around and focus on the Donbass. And, and you know, there are elements of uh, the campaign that has gone on to date that that could be 
um, described as a sort of general effort to degrade Ukrainian the Ukrainian military uh, in advance of some more specific uh, you know objective or you know trying to achieve some more specific objective like securing control of of the Donbass or of you know kind of generally southeastern uh, Ukraine. That said. Uh, they lost apparently a lot of a lot of soldiers, and I know this is sort of the historic um, view of Russian war, you know, war planning and and you know military tactics is you just throw men into the meat grinder until you wear down the enemy, and there there yeah, it's is been something true to for that two and a half centuries. Yeah, that that is the, um, particularly at the initial phases of war, um, that seems to be a general tactic that is used. Uh, and even, I mean, but, and even at this point, the, the Kremlin itself, I mean, Dmitry Peskov, who's the, the Kremlin spokesperson, uh, did an interview, I think, with Sky News, um, a couple of days ago, or maybe just in the last day or so, uh, acknowledging significant losses, which is something the Russians haven't really, um, done. I mean, you didn't get into specifics, but they're, they're sort of hinting at, um, you know, that, that, that they've suffered more losses than they've let on. Uh, so this is something that even the Russian government seems to be admitting at this point. And I, I, uh, even, even within the context of past Russian sort of military history and the tactics that, that the Russian military has used, um, I, I find it hard to believe that they lost, they were willing to lose as many men as uh, it sounds like they've lost, uh, on what were basically misdirection, uh, campaigns in, in Kiev and Chernihiv. Uh, there was a lot of assets, a lot of, not just men, but material that, uh, seems to have been lost, uh, in those efforts that, that indicate to me that these were at least at one time serious, um, you know, pushes that the, that the Russians legitimately wanted to take these places. But again, I mean, that's just what, what it looks like to me. So, Derek, before we move on to, I think we're going to probably talk about the atrocities that have been discovered. But before we yes. do that, um, I wanted to ask, it seems to me that this makes it more difficult to claim that um, Russia would have the capability to do something like invade or attack a NATO country, um, that the Russian military probably performed more poorly than Putin and his coterie expected, and that when we're talking about international relations, it does suggest that it doesn't really have the capacities to attack NATO countries. Do you think that is a correct conclusion, or am I missing something there? Uh, I think that's correct. Um, at least the perception is that uh, the Russian military is not capable of undertaking an operation, would not be capable of undertaking an operation against NATO, uh, against one of, you know, NATO's Eastern members, which has been the sort of, uh, worst, you know, kind of apocalyptic scenario that, uh, that countries like Poland and, and other Eastern NATO members have, have laid out. Um, I think it's, it's probably another argument in favor of the idea that this stab at Kiev or the stab at Chernihiv and, and these other places were legitimate because whether the Russians intended it or not, they've sort of, uh, conveyed the, they've given a lot of, um, propaganda fodder, let's say to Western governments who want to say, uh, want to diminish the Russian military and can now claim that, look, they've, you know, embarrassed themselves in these places. In uh, Ukraine, they weren't able to move, they weren't able to do anything, and, and they've sort of, you know, their tactics were bad, their supplies were, uh, logistics were were not well thought out. So they, they've, 
if if those were meant as misdirections, they're costly misdirections from the sense of, uh, you know, a Russian government that wants to portray its military as uh, one of the most powerful in the world. Um, you know, they've they've taken a hit on that front, on the PR front, at least. Yeah, and it'll be interesting in, you know, a decade or so to put this invasion in a larger historical context, because it does seem to indicate the broader Basically, delegitimization isn't the right word, but you know the increasing attenuation of the Russian military's power because so much of Western geo strategy since 1945 is premised on basically preventing a Russian slash earlier Soviet invasion of Western Europe. And if that really doesn't become, it just seems like it'll never happen. That will probably um, force some type of rethinking amongst you know recently ascendant powers like uh, Germany and France vis-a-vis the United States. So that's something to keep a hold on. So Derek, why don't we move on? Yes, and I don't want to diminish, uh, you know, when we say this, that uh, the Russians have kind of, uh, at least it looks like they they may have face-planted a little bit or that their their military is not all it's cracked up to be. I don't want to diminish the damage that they've done. Of course not. uh, To the Ukrainian military. Um, The damage that they have done to civilian areas. Yeah. Uh, and Truly the damage disgusting. that they're likely to do as this, you know, a, even with a narrower focus on just the uh, sort of the Donbass region, um, I, th- I think you're you're still talking about a very long and destructive conflict ahead. I don't I don't see a the the sort of you know mythical off ramp uh, coming to fruition just yet. Although peace talks are you know supposedly still uh, still being organized. That's right, and uh, completely agree with all that. So why don't we move on to the, the topic of atrocities and what seems to have happened in uh, Ukraine? So there are, um, again, this is sort of related to the Russian withdrawal, uh, especially from the, the Kiev Oblast. Um, the, as Ukrainian forces have moved in, uh, they've been releasing videos, images of heavy destruction of civilian areas, uh, residential areas, uh, along with indications of things like mass graves, uh, bodies left out in the streets of people who show signs of having been summarily executed or you know otherwise mistreated. Uh, this has been uh, probably the biggest. Uh, international story of the week related to this this war in terms of the the amount of play that it's getting in in uh, international media. Uh, the Russians are denying any claims that they uh, their forces committed any war crimes. Uh, there they've been you know arguments made that these are uh, mocked up that they're dummy that that even you know Ukrainian forces came in and did like a false flag execution of uh, the civilian populations and this has been mostly in in the region of Bucha. Uh, I should say, which is a city in Kiev Oblast, but there are indications uh, that similar things may have happened elsewhere. And to reiterate something I said earlier, uh, the the most violent place in this war so far has been Mariupol, and we have absolutely no idea uh, really what how how violent it's been or what's gone on there because the fighting is still uh, going on. Um, so there may be a lot more of this kind of thing. Uh, I should say there is also the New York Times just uh, did a report, I think, yesterday uh, on a video that uh, seemed to confirm uh, the claim that this video showed a unit of Ukrainian soldiers uh, executing Russian prisoners, uh, at least one uh, Russian prisoner, but there seemed to be others 
uh, in the video who had uh, gotten similar treatment. Um, so, you know, I don't want to minimize the uh, the atrocities that are going on all over the place in this conflict. And, and really, uh, the, the atrocities that go on anytime there's a war, uh, this is this is the kind of thing that happens. It's not unique, I think, to to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, but yeah, so we're we're in a phase now of of you know talking about some really serious atrocities, the kind of things that that could generate um, war crimes investigations. Not that I expect them to go anywhere. Uh, the kinds of things that may have an effect on uh, you know in the in the short term may have an effect on Western sanctions. You may see some renewed energy behind things like a, an oil and gas embargo, which European c governments have been reluctant to impose. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised, actually, that, that there hasn't been more of a push for that in the, the days since these videos uh, and images were released. But but that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's still something that, that could uh, emerge from this. Um, I assume that we're in the fog of war moment right now. For example, we don't know if this was directed by higher levels in the military or government, or if this is, like you said, uh, the consequence of the brutal violence of war itself. Um, do we have any information about any of that or not really? I have not seen anything uh, in terms of whether these things were ordered from above or just carried out in the heat of the moment. And, you know, again, it's um, the Russians are, are still denying that they did anything at all. So you just want to kind of keep that in mind, but no, to, to my knowledge and, you know, apologies if I've, uh, missed something in the fog of vacation as it were. Um, but I haven't seen any indication, uh, that, I mean, the intelligence that, uh, agencies in the West seem to be focused right now on sort of proving that, that these were, uh, these actions were carried out by the Russians and kind of, uh, you know, countering these claims from the from Moscow that that they had nothing to do with it. But I haven't seen anything um, indicating that they got orders from on high. Now, you know, what what is on high it could be, uh, you know, the officers in that area specifically. It could be Russian higher level Russian military commands. It could be you know all the way from the Kremlin. I don't think they got anything from the Kremlin, but uh, um, you know, I think. I think uh, this is going to be one of the things that gets investigated as, as you know, the ICC gets involved, the International Criminal Court and, and other international institutions, NGOs. Uh, one of the things that they'll be trying to figure out is, is you know, what exactly happened here and who gave the order to, to do it. Have there been any indications about how the course of the war has affected Putin's position? As you'll recall, uh, at the beginning of the war, there was a uh, discussion about whether if it went poorly, it would actually result in, in more protests within Russia or even Putin's removal. Have there been, uh, has there been any movement on that or is that just proven to be kind of a, a fantasy or a chimera? Um, there's been nothing. And, you know, the, the inner workings, I think, of, of the Russian government have been laid pretty bare here, which is to say that um, you know, any theories about who Putin was listening to, uh, I think have been, uh, can be cast aside. I don't think he's listening to anybody. He's, he's doing what he wants, uh, and, you know, uh, punishing people for not, uh, implementing it to his satisfaction. Um, polling, I mean, to the extent that you can rely on polling, uh, in a, in a country like Russia, uh, indicates that people are supportive. He's, his p approval rating has gone up. Uh, since the invasion began, um, I, I don't. Again, I mean, I have I have some caveats about relying on polling in in Russia, but I, I think 
you know, you may not want to rely on the specific numbers. Like, you know, I but think the, the, the approval rating was 80% or more at this in this most recent round of polling. But the trends going up from mid-60s to the 80s, that, that's a, uh, that trend is probably reflective of, um, you know, I think a host of things. There, there's some... Definitely consequence uh, of sanctions, for sure. Some rally around the flag, some sanctions, some backlash to sanctions, and sort of uh, hostility toward the West, certainly. So I, I, do, I do think that's fairly credible. Um, we haven't seen a lot of protests since the first kind of week, uh, to my knowledge at least, since the first week or so uh, of the conflict. And I think um, a lot of the people, a lot of the kind of urbane uh, Russians who oppose the war have have left. I mean, there's been a significant uh, movement of people out of Russia um, as a result of the war. And some of that is escaping sanctions, but some of it is also escaping a, an environment where it's really not. Uh, maybe safe to to be vocally opposed to the war at this point. Um, so let's leave Ukraine and Russia for a moment and move a bit westward to Europe, where there have been a number of developments in terms of European elections. So why don't we start with uh, Viktor Orban's re-election in Hungary? Yeah. So uh, election uh, Hungary held its uh, general election on Sunday. Um, uh, April third. Uh, not it was not terribly surprising. Uh, that Viktor Orban's uh, uh, party, his uh, Fidesz party, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it, probably butchering that, I'm sorry. Uh, I pronounce Fidesz's, it Fidesz, but maybe Fidesz, I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hungarian is really, my, my Hungarian is really, really... Well, it's uh, an isolate, so I'll forgive you this time. But uh, this plus the vacation that. is just not... It's, your, your quarterly report's not going to look so great, <laughs> just to be honest, Eric, but... Please continue. Uh, so Orban's, uh, yes, yeah, so Fidesz and, and Orban won uh, re-election. Uh, this is his fourth consecutive, this will be Orban's fourth consecutive term. Uh, it's Ooh, not FDR. terribly surprising. The FDR uh, Yeah, number. exactly. Uh, it's not terribly surprising that this happened. Polling uh, prior to the election indicated that uh, Orban had a narrow lead over the unified opposition, this was the big sort of change in this election, was that all the opposition parties had gotten together, they'd agreed to sort of divide and conquer, so, you know, they would back each other's candidates in, in regions where, you know, one candidate made more sense than the other. Uh, they nominated one candidate for prime minister, um, you know, to run kind of head-to-head -head against Orban. Um, and uh, despite that, uh, and despite some fairly favorable polling initially, uh, when they, they announced this unified ticket, uh, Orban's polling numbers um, steadily kind of improved uh, to the point where he was up, uh, you know, two to three points, I think, in, in most pre-election polling with a large number uh, of uh, undecided voters that seemed to have broken. Because, I mean, the, the margin of victory, I think, was uh, significantly more than that. It was like 54% uh, for uh, Fidesz and, and there's still a, you know, still some, at last I looked, there was still some, uh, number of votes to be counted, but, um, you know, it seems they seem to have won a, a bigger victory than pre-election polling indicated. So presumably they got some, you know, significant portion of those undecideds to break at the last minute in favor of Fidesz. The, you know, indication here, um, I think there's a, a few things, to, a couple of things to take from it. One is um, Orban was believed, you know, there was there was some sense uh, when the Ukraine invasion started that that could be a real uh, kind of wrench in the works for Orban because he's got, 
very close relations with uh, Russia, probably the closest European Union member, kind of head of state or head of government in this case, uh, to Russia, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, there was some feeling that he might suffer from that, uh, given, you know, the invasion and given the, the tension kind of, uh, you know, people were feeling about that. That seems not to have happened. Uh, the Ukrainian government, Volodymyr Zelensky in particular, seemed to have tried to, to kind of influence Hungarian politics a little bit. Uh, Zelensky was very pointedly vocal in public uh, about criticizing Orban for uh, his relationship with Putin and for kind of being, uh, you know, not being very supportive of things like weapon shipments and sanctions that uh, the EU was adopting or the European nations have been, been kind of, uh, you know, doing to support the Ukrainian government. Uh, so there was some effort to, to I think, influence Hungarian voters to, to vote against Orban, but that clearly didn't work out either. Um, you know, there are, there's no indication, I think, uh, as far as I can tell, of any fraudulent uh, election kind of shenanigans, but uh, Orban is a believer in sort of the uh, illiberal democracy uh, system where you uh, you do your rigging ahead of time by making sure the opposition can't have access to media, making sure that uh, you know they can't hold rallies, they can't campaign in a normal right. way. So there's formal. Uh, what Derek is saying is that there's formal democracy, but it's not substantive. There's no really content to it. Right. It's it's sort of you have. Um, I think the the rubric is uh, free but not fair elections. Yeah. And also uh, like words, defining people, democracy by elections. People we'll can talk vote, about that a lot. <laughs> you know, people can vote for whom they whoever they want, uh, but they really are are presented with no reason to vote for the opposition before the election. So um yeah, so that's you know, clearly um Orban was in, in safer shape than than he may have been uh believed to be prior to the right, election. which suggests, and I think we're seeing something similar in the United States, the waning of the, the Ukraine issue as a major issue in the news. And I think that's a, very much reflective of just the, the realities of the news cycle today, where, where something like this might have been, you know, months long, have months of coverage in the past. It's just people's attention spans are just, uh, are, are just lower. I think it, the beginning of the end was the slap. And now we're seeing, I think, less and less interest in the American domestic media sphere. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is happening elsewhere as well. I yeah I I agree with that. I mean I certainly think attention is is being taken up by other things and and you know particularly uh, in an environment where people are already stressing about the economy they're already stressing about uh you know the effect that lockdowns and the uh problems with the, the supply chain have been having inflation uh, there are there are sort of the the traditional kind of meat and potatoes issues for people to to grapple with the, the everyday things. Uh, I think it's, it's a very easy for a story like Ukraine that even for Hungary is, you know, it's close, but it's not, uh, uh, something that's immediately affecting people's lives necessarily. Uh, it's very easy for that to slip off the, the radar a bit, uh, as, as everybody kind of deals with their own, uh, day-to-day -day issues. Yeah. And it's, it's very easily assimilable. So why don't we go south a little bit to Serbia and talk a, a bit about Aleksandar uh, Vucic's re-election. Yeah, Vucic won uh, re-election uh, in well, what by all accounts was a landslide. Uh, 
he's another um, European leader. Of course, Serbia is not uh, in the EU, not in NATO. Uh, they would like to be in at least the EU, maybe uh, NATO as well. But, uh, you know, another European leader who's very close to Russia, very close to Putin. Um, but Serbia's political environment, I think, is a little bit more Russia-friendly uh, as a rule, uh, especially if you go back to the the escapades of the 90s and the breakup of Yugoslavia and, and NATO interventions in, in those conflicts. There's a, uh, there's a, a sense of Russia having been uh, sort of the protector of, of Serbia. Um, so, you know, clearly he didn't suffer from, you know, suffer any, any backlash from his relationship with Putin. Um, and I don't think this, this comes as much of a surprise either. It, it does um, indicate that, uh, you know, the ongoing kind of uh, grappling over Kosovo's status and, and whether these countries are going to come to uh, some, manage to come to some accord about, uh, uh, you know, what, whether Kosovo is independent or what. And you know, this is one of the things that keeps both of them, I think, out of the EU or, or you know, has hampered their EU applications. Um, that's going to keep going because Vucic was not, Vucic has not been particularly amenable to the idea of letting Kosovo go uh, officially. Um, this was, There was a controversy actually involved in, in this, uh, you know, involving Kosovo in this election. The, the government in Kosovo did, uh, refused to allow Serbs living in uh, especially the the northern kind of uh, break kind of the the border region of Kosovo where it's right you know right on the the line where uh, Kosovo ends and I, I say border because Kosovo isn't universally recognized I guess but the border between Kosovo and Serbia uh, where there's a large Serbian population uh, they refuse to allow uh, people in that region especially to vote. Uh, in the election in Serbia. So uh, the Serbian government ran buses, I think, uh, to the border to allow people, if they could get there, to, to kind of... Uh, uh, and there were buses being, I think, run out of the, the northern kind of breakaway or part of the Serb-heavy parts of uh, Kosovo to allow people to go to Serbia and participate in the election. But uh, this was a controversy leading up to the election. The Kosovan government took some criticism from... Um, the United States and I think uh, a couple of European countries for not allowing the uh, Serbs living in Kosovo to uh, participate in their home, you know, sort of stay at home and participate. Um, so just an interesting kind of sideline to this is you're, uh, if you're a Balkans watcher and somebody who, uh, you know, sort of wonders whether these countries are making any progress toward getting into the EU, I think the answer is, is clearly no. Yeah, I, I think that. And I think this will be actually a big shift post-Ukraine. I think there's going to be a lot less talk about NATO expansion. I think there's going to be a lot less talk about joining the European Union. In, in some way, I think that era, you know, let's say which began in 1993 and continued until 2022 is at its end, about 19 years. Oh, no, 30. Oh, my God, 29 years of, of talk about expansion. I think we're going to see a solidification of some of these, you know, uh, borders of what is, quote unquote, Western Europe and what is, quote unquote, Eastern uh, Europe. And that'll be interesting to follow. So there's actually more election news, but this time in uh, Western Europe, and that is in France, where Marine Le Pen seems to be gaining on friend of the pod Emmanuel Macron in the polling. So what does that suggest, Derek? Yes. So uh, I, I'm honestly not sure. This is uh, another case of, I think, uh, the expectation 
that Ukraine would play a major role in uh, in a European election uh, being thwarted. Marine Le Pen. Could uh, I just say and, very quickly, Derek? I, yeah. I think that it's really interesting, particularly when you're in, when you're in the United States and the entire foreign policy media, national security media has a particular ideology, which is at its base, in my opinion, at least, uh, liberal internationalism, otherwise known as liberal interventionism. So when the war happened, I think there was an over-reading of it in terms of what it meant first for U.S. grand strategy. I don't think U.S. grand strategy is really affected that much. I believe the United States is going to continue foc- uh, focusing on the rise of China and what it's going to do in East Asia, but also in terms of the, the broader effects that this would have in the world. And we're seeing it, I think, in these elections. I think it's it's of less geopolitical importance than people believed uh, initially. And I think this is, again, reflected in the elections in Hungary, Serbia, and now in France. Yeah, I mean, the French right in general, um, Le Pen in particular, are, uh, you know, sort of tied to uh, the Russian government in ways that you might have thought would be uncomfortable for them. Uh, to have to deal with uh, post-invasion. And yet, um, you know, there's been movement not just uh, in terms of the first round of the election, which is set to take place in a couple of days here, uh, but in terms of the second round of the election. And so uh, Le Pen has distanced herself from uh, other conservative, sort of mainstream conservative and far-right Rivals, all of them, you know, there were there were a couple of other candidates that had sort of contested over the course of the the campaign uh, with Le Pen in polling to for the you know the uh, uh, basically who was in the the driver's seat in terms of winding up in a runoff with Macron. Uh, Le Pen has has really opened up a, a big gap. It seems obvious now that she will be the uh, the candidate who finishes. Uh, probably in second place in the the first round and and winds up in a runoff with Macron. In addition to that, we've seen a lot of movement in terms of the hypothetical runoff polling, uh, where even just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Macron was polling in double digit lead over uh, Le Pen. Uh, you know, we're talking about like 56 to 44 or 55 to, you know, whatever, uh, 55, 45, that sort of thing. Uh, now that lead has gone in, in pretty much every poll that's been taken, uh, in early April here that's been released. Uh, that lead has gone down to single digits, uh, some, in some cases, low single digits. And there was one poll that I saw that had Le Pen winning. Uh, by a, by a point, I mean a nail, you know, really the definition of a, a narrow victory. Um, that's probably an outlier, but the movement uh, overall in her direction seems to be real. It doesn't seem to be a, an artifact of one poll or two polls. This is every poll uh, that's come out has her, you know, coming within six, five, you know, maybe even uh, fewer than that uh, points of Macron heading into the runoff, which will take place uh, on April twenty fourth. My guess is that, uh, you know, assuming that uh, Le Pen does wind up, you know, assuming that the, the runoff winds up being Macron versus Le Pen, uh, which we'll know, again, the, the first round's on April 10th, that, that those next two weeks uh, will give Macron a lot of time to remind the same people who didn't, you know, sort of flock to him 
uh, in, uh, in 20, you know, 2018 or 2017, excuse me, uh, because they didn't want Marine Le Pen to be president of France. It'll give him two weeks to sort of remind them why they didn't want Marine Le Pen to be, to be president of France. And I, I suspect that he will still win, but this is much closer, I think, than he, uh, anticipated. Now, if you recall in 2017, uh, the second round uh, of the election, I think he took like 66 percent of the vote uh, and just, you know, uh, uh, really ran away really, with it. Yeah. You know, ran away with it. And I, that's doesn't seem like it's going to happen uh, this time. Yeah. But looking at the structural level, it does seem like this continued crisis of liberalism that so many people talk about it, it is a thing. The fact that a Le Pen is able to get so close, the fact that Orban's being reelected in Hungary, et cetera, does indicate that the, the hegemony um, that liberalism has been able to really hold for 30 years, if not longer, is being challenged in a very significant way. And we're still in the middle of this ongoing process. And I, I just wanted to highlight that because I think that's emerged as one of the major themes of the show that there's this geopolitical international crisis of liberalism that we're going to you know keep uncovering for the next few months years what have you um derek do you have anything I mean, to say about is that sort of the avatar of yeah. of liberalism at this point and he's in an that, obama you know, kind of figure centrist neoliberal yeah exactly he's he's a very obama-esque uh, guy and and yeah i mean i think that you're you're seeing um you know there's just no there's no juice there anymore like there's there's, right. you, you, there's no juice left to squeeze yeah. change right i mean they've they've kind of you know gotten every they've wrung everything they can out of that ideology and and people aren't happy with it and they want something else and the only place i mean i you know i i hate to say this but the only place where there's a, a vibrant push for anything different um, and this is, you know, th there's a whole host of reasons for this, but but it's it's on the the right. I mean, this is where yeah, the far right uh, people are looking right. for, yeah. you know, just the the voter who's uh, fed up and wants something different, anything different. Uh, this is this is where the the movement is at right now, or the the sort of action is, I guess. Yeah, and and it leaves uh, leaves it up to us, you know, uh, on the left wing left wing side of the spectrum to begin to build a counter hegemonic movement in a serious way, and and you know, particularly after uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign in the United States and the Corbyn campaign in the UK, it, it, you know, we're in a bit of a fallow period, and some something that could be a, uh, happen over the next few years is to really think organizationally and strategically uh, about how we would pose a challenge, um, both to sort of the neoliberals that we disagree with, the liberal international that we disagree with, but also the far-right extremists who are in no way um, aligned with us in any way, shape, or form and are just purely anti-democratic and reactionary. Um, so why don't we move over actually to South Asia where there's been quite a bit of news this week, and, and why don't we start with uh, Sri Lanka and protests there? So Derek, maybe you could explain uh, what's happening. Yeah, there's been uh, a number of serious protests, major protests, uh, targeting uh, President Sri Lankan President uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, um, his the the Rajapaksa family sort of uh, you know controls Sri Lankan uh, Sri Lankan politics at this point. Uh, Mahinda uh, Rajapaksa was a, a former president, and and Gotabaya's brother is serving as prime minister, and uh, you know they've got I, I think another brother who's uh, in the cabinet, and I think finance minister. Um, so it's sort of the family business at this point, and and uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there've been a number of serious protests and I don't, you know, I, it's too soon to draw any conclusions or, or to, to speculate on what may happen here. But I think, 
there may be, uh, we may be seeing some of the fallout of uh, one aspect of the war in Ukraine, which is high food prices. Um, you know, Ukraine and Russia are both uh, major food exporters. Uh, obviously, for Ukraine, it's going to be impossible to to have anything like a normal uh, agricultural industry at this point. And Russia, because of sanctions, uh, because of, you know, the Russian government has, has itself kind of uh, pulled back on agricultural exports, um, you know, partly in a way to uh, sort of demonstrate that they have some, some uh, ability to affect the global economy, partly because they're uh, concerned about sanctions and their effect and, and what that might mean for food in Russia. Uh, but, you know, this is, uh, the war has already, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, we've talked a lot about oil price, oil prices and gasoline prices spiking. It's caused a spike in, in global food prices. Uh, it's likely to cause shortages in places all around the world that depend on especially wheat exports uh, from these two countries. Um, and I think part of what may be happening here uh, in Sri Lanka is that food prices are rising. Um, you know, prices for other goods are rising. Um, you know, again, we can talk about oil prices, uh, and people are responding to that. And then, you know, people tend to respond and to uh, basic needs uh, being priced out of their ability to pay for them by going to the streets and protesting. Uh, this is something we saw uh, something you know some of in uh, 2011 with the start of the Arab yes, Spring protests. Arab Spring, yes. um, you know, especially in Egypt and Syria, there was a you know a Mediterranean drought. Out that caused food prices to spike, and this is one of the uh, theorized causes of the protests that led to the Arab Spring. And so, I think um, my suspicion, again, uh, you know, I feel like it's it's uh, premature to to draw hard conclusions. But the reason, one of the reasons, I wanted to talk about what's what's been happening here is I think you may be seeing uh, the emergence of a similar uh, you know kind of protest uh, type movement, you know, in, in Sri Lanka and other places that are. Um, you know, somewhat dependent on importing food uh, in, you know, in response to these situations. Yeah, it's also, uh, just to very quickly state, it, it shows the fact that it's a world system in a real way, and you could see the various effects in one arena of the world and another one. And I think that any sort of analysis of foreign relations, whether yours or not, needs to take account of the systemic nature of international politics. And this is a very clear, I think, um, way that you could see like you you whack a mole in one area and something else pops up in the other and right, um, exactly that's very clear so why don't we actually uh, then talk about the no confidence vote uh, against um, pr uh, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan and the developments that have occurred in relation to that yeah so there's a major development just to today uh, Thursday as we're uh, sort of talking about this we, we had talked I think last week about uh, Khan. Uh, facing a no-confidence vote, he'd lost a fair amount of parliamentary support. Uh, his uh, PTI party's coalition partners were moving uh, away from from him. Uh, some of the members of his own party had uh, allegedly defected to the opposition and were planning to support the no-confidence motion. Uh, so a couple of things happened this week, and I, I, said, I said one uh, just uh, within the last day or so. Uh, on Sunday, uh, Khan attempted to get around the no-confidence motion by convincing the Pakistani presidency, the office of the president, to uh, dissolve parliament and call for a new election. Uh, so this indicated it indicates that uh, he was probably, um, you know, fairly certain he was going to lose the vote, and this was his last-ditch, I think, effort to avoid it. Um, so that, that threw a lot of things into uncertainty. The opposition was obviously quite upset with this. 
because they were planning to replace Khan's government with a, a coalition of their own, um, that, you know, the dissolving parliament and, and going to a new election takes that off the table. It raises the possibility of Khan remaining in power if, if PTI uh, were to do well in that, uh, that election. And then uh, just Thursday, and this is sort of developing, so I don't have a lot of uh, information on it yet, but uh, the Pakistani Supreme Court uh, apparently ruled in favor of a challenge, a legal challenge from the opposition uh, that the National Assembly has to be reconvened, has to hold the no confidence vote, uh, that, that the dissolution was not legal, was not lawful. Uh, and so uh, it may be that we're back to to where we were last week with Khan facing. Uh, I mean, maybe it's it's you know the Supreme Court's pretty definitive. It looks like Khan will be back to facing this no confidence vote, and and assuming he loses, uh, f- his government will probably be replaced by a a coalition involving I think the the Pakistani People's Party. Uh, the Pakistani Muslim League, um, you know, these are two parties that don't really get along with one another, but they've sort of joined forces in opposition to Khan. Uh, so they will probably uh, try to pick up uh, the pieces and, and replace him if and when, if or when, I guess, uh, he loses the, the no confidence vote. And it'll be very interesting because there was a lot of support for Khan in Islamabad, correct? There was a lot of people who came out in, in favor of him. Yeah, PTI organized protests this week uh, in support and, and even over the weekend, I think, in support of Khan, uh, you know, show of force, uh, if you will. You know, it's hard to, you, you know, I don't like to, to extrapolate too much from the crowd, the size of a crowd at a protest, uh, because it's always a, a subset of a subset of a subset, really, of a uh, any country's population. So, you know, there's always this so, sort of so-called silent majority to think about. But, uh, you know, Khan clearly does have, uh, still have some popular support. It's, he's lost, uh, by all accounts, the backing of the military, which has been politically detrimental to him. But, but in terms of popular support, I think he still has a, a fair amount of juice. And, and, you know, the reason that he would prefer to go to an election at this point, uh, as opposed to losing the no confidence vote, is because uh, clearly he feels like he could still, uh, you know, make his case to the Pakistani public and, and you know, remain in power by, by doing so. So why don't we turn to our final story, which seems to actually be, and correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, kind of kind of good news, which is that there's been a ceasefire in Yemen. Um, and, our allergy uh, to good news is going to be tested <laughs> here. Yeah, let's see. So let's talk a bit about the Yemen ceasefire and the resignation of uh, President uh, Abdrabu Mansour Hadi. Uh, so Hadi hasn't technically, I don't think you can technically call it a resignation. It's, he cedes power. So that I was trying yes. to figure out how, how so that I'm, he, I'm trying to power figure has out been why. ceded. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm sort of trying to figure out why this is happening, but uh, it's it's not clear to me yet. Uh, so um, I think again, last week we may have talked about the effort to engage uh, Yemen's warring parties for a ceasefire that would have lasted through Ramadan, uh, th- the month of Ramadan, is the Islamic calendar, uh, that would have involved some peace talks. Uh, again, it's sort of general national ceasefire. At the time, uh, that was looking fairly shaky. Uh, the rebels, the Ansar Allah Houthi faction in, in northern Yemen, uh, was uh, didn't seem to be reacting coolly to uh, the UN's uh, kind of offer or, or, you know, it's, it's suggestion that they, 
um, they have a they they engage in the ceasefire, and yet uh, within a, a couple of days after uh, last week's episode aired, uh, the two sides agreed on not just a one month ceasefire, a two month ceasefire uh, that includes a partial lifting or easing, uh, let's say, uh, of the Saudi blockade uh, on northern Yemen. Um, the, uh, I think the agreement calls for something like eight or maybe 12, like I don't have the exact figure, uh, fuel shipments to be allowed into Northern Yemen. Uh, these are, you know, the Saudis have been blocking fuel shipments from entering, uh, rebel controlled parts of the country, uh, there to allow, uh, some limited number of flights in and out of Sana'a airport, which is something else the Saudis have been blocking. Uh, and in return, the Houthis agreed to, uh, you know, knock it off for a couple of months. Uh, the ceasefire seems to be holding you know some were you know here a week later i guess uh seems to be holding so far so uh that's a good sign um there have been you know reports of uh, limited violations here and there but you always have that sort of thing happen in in a situation like this especially at the very beginning of a ceasefire um by and large it seems to be holding and then yeah the the so the other thing to talk about here is the political uh shakeup which is still just kind of emerging um, Thursday, uh, what happened was uh, Abdurabu uh, Mansour Hadi, the president, the internationally recognized president of Yemen, announced that he was replacing uh, or firing, uh, rather, his vice president uh, and that he would be giving all of his powers and the vice president's powers over to a new presidential council. Uh, again, as I, as, uh, I, I said to, suggested to Danny, I'm not sure what his legal status is at this point. It's not necessarily a resignation, uh, but the, the presidential council, according to Hadi, uh, he said uh, he was irreversibly, uh, that's, you can, that's a quote, irreversibly delegating uh, his full powers to the, the presidential council. Um, I, I don't know what to make of this yet uh, exactly, except to say that it's clearly something that uh, Saudi Arabia wanted because as soon as Hadi made this announcement, the Saudis announced uh, $3 billion in new aid to Yemen. Um, although I think some of that's going to come from the UAE. So maybe the UAE wanted it as well. Uh, the council includes uh, an array of representatives from all the various and not necessarily united uh, factions that have been, uh, let's say, opposing the rebels more than backing Hadi. Uh, so the the chair uh, is uh, Hadi's former interior minister, um, Rashid al-Alami, uh, who is close to the Islamist Islah party. Uh, somewhat interesting to me that uh, the Saudis seem to be rewarding Hadi for doing this, uh, even though uh, the Saudis and especially the UAE are not terribly uh, thrilled with Islam and, and sort of Muslim Brotherhood related parties uh, like that. Um, nevertheless, uh, it includes uh, also representatives of the separatist Southern Transitional Council um, who are have supported Hadi again, sort of uh, you know opposition to the rebels. But really, what they want is to secede from Yemen and, and establish an independent Southern Yemen uh, or South Yemen again, as, as it existed during uh, most of the Cold War. So it, yeah, it's it's sort of uh, just this is this is just developing. So it's hard for me to to say 
uh, why or speculate why it happened um, or what effect it may have. It's possible that this council will be able to speak uh, with more authority than had he had more actual, like, practical uh, de facto authority than had he really was able to speak with. Uh, and that could improve the chances of a, a peace talks uh, succeeding and actually getting, you know, a more permanent end to this conflict in place. On the other hand, uh, you know, these are all folks who are, um, you know, maybe more opposed to, to talking to the rebels than Hattie was. And so it may th make things more difficult. They may be more recalcitrant. I don't know uh, uh, at this point. Well, Derek, that was a hell of a lot of news. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, the Saudis, uh, the Saudis clearly want to get out of this conflict. They, 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 they have to want to get out of it at this point. Like, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that they do. Um, you know, they, they've, they've tried to, uh, offer the rebels, uh, an end to the blockade in return for a ceasefire. The, the rebels have insisted on, uh, the blockade ending as a precursor, as a prerequisite to negotiating uh, a ceasefire. That, that went out the window a little bit here with this, uh, two month ceasefire, which admittedly is only a temporary thing, but maybe the, uh, the Ansar Allah position is, is softening a little bit. Um, so, but, but, but the Saudis, you know, it, it seems fairly clear that they would like to get this war over and so if they're supporting this move uh and really probably uh told hattie that he had to do it i mean the, the nature of the relationship is uh he sort of works for them at this point um so if if they engineered this then i i presume it's an effort to speed up peace talks but but you know i i, I don't uh, i don't know i don't know that for a fact uh, well, I think on that note, we should probably end. It does seem like something positive might be developing in Yemen, which would be very good news in, uh, in a world where we just get yeah. bad news just, over just, and over and over Let's just again. call it there. We don't get to end on a high note or a happy note very often. Let's just say it's good and, and call it a day. And leave uh, leave there. Well, well everyone, thank you uh, again for supporting the show. Uh, please subscribe over at Substack, and we will see you all next week. Bye, Derek. Bye-bye.